Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly. And tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now, I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. Afraid, yet filled with joy. And ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? O Lord, just as you opened the eyes of your followers through the past centuries and millennia to see you risen, would you open our eyes this morning to see you risen? You are alive. The word, the scriptures are alive. Would you change us through them? We ask these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can, you can probably tell by the, the hubbub, by the fact that there are more people today than we've had in over a year. Uh, today is a big deal in the Christian calendar. It's Easter. This is the biggest celebration in the Christian calendar, and for good reason. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. We, have, I, have I said that yet today? Have I mentioned, by the way? Jesus was raised from the dead. The tomb is empty. Um, it's a mystery. We don't, there's actually a lot that we don't understand about the resurrection. It is shocking in some ways, but the things that we do understand are profound. It has changed our life. I was sitting and thinking just two minutes ago as I was listening to Luciana, uh, You hear the joy in her voice. That to somebody who doesn't understand the resurrection, who hasn't experienced the new life of Jesus, it would be very fitting to wonder, why is this, like, who cares? Why is this such a big deal? But once your life has been changed, it's, you can't stuff it down. When your life has been changed, the resurrection, the joy spills over and out. Easter is significant because Jesus has inaugurated a new age. And it's not just in our lives, but he has done that. But it's actually for the whole world. He's inaugurating a new era. It's, it's God's way of saying, my kingdom is coming to earth. Remember what we just prayed? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Easter is God's way of saying, I am beginning to make good on that promise. I am bringing my kingdom to break into the darkness of this world to overpower the sin that overpowers this world. The empty tomb is the beginning of God's answer to that prayer. 
Now this, this year on Easter, I want to step back just a little bit. And instead of looking very granularly at a couple of trees, which is usually more my style, let's try to look at the whole forest. Let's think about God's plan. How exactly is God stepping into the world to take all of the brokenness and the sin and make it right? Specifically, I want to think about how unexpected God's plan is. The word that comes to mind for me is backwards. How backwards is God's plan? Because if you read carefully and if you know the story of Easter, you know that it's unexpected. It seems like God is doing everything the exact wrong way. I thought about titling this sermon, How Not to Build a Kingdom. Because if you ask anybody, anybody who knows, anybody who's been a manager, anybody who's a successful entrepreneur, anybody who's a high-level executive, if you ask anybody who understands how to affect cultural change, how do you go about building something big and lasting and sustaining? They'll tell you to do it in the exact opposite way that Jesus does. So this morning, we're looking through the lens of the empty, empty tomb at how God is bringing his kingdom to earth in all the wrong ways and how, in fact, his wrong ways are the right ways. We see in the Easter story, God uses the wrong methods, he uses the wrong people, and he starts from the wrong place. The wrong methods, that's our outline this morning. How God is wrong. That's a heck of an Easter sermon. The wrong methods, the wrong people, the wrong place. The wrong method is probably the most obvious. Um, Let me just give you a quick overview. The Hebrew word, there's a Hebrew word Messiah. You've probably heard it used about Jesus. It means anointed one. In ancient cultures, they would anoint someone, which literally just means they would pour oil over their head. It was a symbol of honor. It was a symbol of somebody's status. You only anointed in ancient Hebrew culture prophets, priests, or kings. That's about it. Now, if you look at the broad, this is my 30-second history of Israel, God had told the Israelites that they're his people, and he's going to use them to bring his kingdom to bear in the world, which is a problem because between 1,000 B.C. and 0 B.C., the Israelites had been slaves for over half of that time. How can you be God's kingdom bearers if you're a slave? That's a problem. Well, throughout that time, God acknowledged the problem and he kept promising, I will send an anointed one, a Messiah, who will be a prophet, a priest, a king, who will be a great leader for you. That's kind of the short version. I'm I'm moving quickly, I know. Hang with me. One of the words we hear most often after the word Jesus in the New Testament is Christ. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, anointed one. You may be surprised to learn Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. Jesus Christ literally means Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one. It's a statement about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. He is the one on whose shoulders lay all of the hopes and dreams of God's people. Let me just state the obvious. I think we all understand this, but I'm just make sure we're all on the same page. If you're going to be the Messiah, the rescuer, the deliverer of a nation, a good first part of your strategy is this. Don't get killed. How can you lead God's people to freedom if you're six feet under? As one author put it, at Jesus' death, he says, it seems like the Roman authorities have swatted aside yet one more low-rent revolutionary. Now, the women appear at the tomb, and you and I know more of the story, and so we can start putting the pieces together But for the women at the tomb who have no idea what's going on, they're mystified. 
The angel said Jesus is alive. I bet they're still struggling to believe it. And that gets us to the second problem. So first problem is method. You don't die if you're going to try to bring about a new kingdom. Secondly, start with the right people. Specifically, don't start with two women. It's common knowledge that in ancient cultures, women were not treated as well as men were. Um, Quick side note on this. It's really striking when you start digging into that just how much credit the biblical authors give to women. This is true of both the Old and the New Testaments. Um, Some people read the Bible and they say, oh, it's so oppressive and demeaning to women. That's a legitimate view if you're not reading it in context. But you have to remember, ancient authors weren't writing to you or to me. Ancient authors were writing 2,000 years ago or longer ago. They weren't writing to a 21st century American audience. And any good practitioner of historical literary criticism knows that the only responsible way to read a work of history is to read it in its context. In other words, who wrote it? What is their culture? What are their cultural assumptions and biases? Who's their audience? Who are they writing to? What are their audience's cultural assumptions and biases? Now, when you compare the way the biblical authors treat women to the way every other ancient author treats women, it's not even fair. The biblical authors are far more progressive than anybody else. It's no contest. No other ancient author gives as much credit to women as the biblical authors do. And we have a perfect example right here in Matthew 28. In Roman cultures, in ancient Rome, again, this is 2,000 years ago, a woman's testimony was inadmissible in a court of law. In other words, you were not legally allowed to call a woman as a witness at a court trial, at a hearing in ancient Rome. Their testimony was considered untrustworthy. Now, we know that's, that's just foolish, but at the time, that's just how it was. I'm not saying it's right, but that's how it was. So think about this. If you're writing a document where you're trying to persuade or illustrate the fact that your king has risen from the dead, which is a pretty incredible thing, incredible literally, like it's hard to believe, are you going to call as your first two witnesses two people whom nobody else will believe because their, their testimony is not valid in court? Furthermore, if you are the one who claims to be that Messiah, Are you going to bank your whole reputation and your whole kingdom on two people that everybody else will overlook? Whom does Jesus choose? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. We don't even know the other Mary's full name. Just the other Mary. Now, if you ask me, those two women, it's a tremendous honor that Jesus chooses them, and they deserve it. They had followed Jesus for three years, just like the other disciples. They had served him, just like the other disciples. In fact, if you look at the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, the men ran, the women stuck around. They did better. And if you'll notice, it's the women going back to Jesus' tomb on Sunday morning, not the men. The men, we know from another gospel, are hiding. Jesus rightly honors Mary Magdalene and the other Mary by appearing to them first. But culturally, in ancient Rome, it's shocking. Jesus is doing things the wrong way. You don't gain power by giving it up. And he's using the wrong people. You don't build your kingdom starting with a couple of no-name women. And lastly, he sends his followers to the wrong place, namely to Galilee, 
Now, it seems like a footnote, and a lot of times when you uh, are reading the Bible and you see a name of an ancient place, it's easy to skip it over, because especially if you've never been, I've never been, uh, we think, okay, they're just going from one town to the other. Usually, it's pretty significant. I would urge you, by the way, if you're reading your Bible and you see a name of a place, a lot of Bibles have maps in the back. Flip to the back and just look and see. That's exactly what I did this this week. I thought, "I I don't know what's significant about it. Here's what I found. Jesus, his disciples, the women, everything that takes place on Holy Week is happening in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital city for the Jews. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. He was buried in Jerusalem. He was raised in Jerusalem. The empty tomb is in Jerusalem. His disciples are hiding out somewhere else in Jerusalem. And he tells the women, go tell my disciples, I'll meet them in Galilee. Why Galilee? Galilee is a region about 75 miles north of Jerusalem. Remember back then they traveled on foot, so you're probably talking something like a week's journey. It's like walking from Boston to Summersworth. Now, if if you think Boston is the center of the universe, and a lot of people who live in Boston think Boston is the center of the universe, why would you go to Summersworth? Like, not a knock on Summersworth, but they probably never heard of Summersworth. Why would Jesus tell them, go there? It's inconvenient. And it's not just inconvenient. Actually, it turns out, according to some commentators, many Jews despised Galilee. It wasn't really a Jewish region. There were Jews who lived there, but there were probably more Gentiles than Jews. So it was kind of a a religiously impure region. And the Jews who did live there had a lot less social capital than the Jews in Jerusalem. It was much more reputable to be a Jerusalem Jew than a Galilean Jew. So why Galilee? Maybe that's exactly the point. Why give up power? Why choose people whom nobody else will trust? Why Galilee? Remember, actually, Jesus himself is from Galilee. He grew up in Nazareth. His disciples are from Galilee. Jesus begins his ministry and completes the bulk of his earthly ministry in Galilee. It's as if he's saying, I'm not interested in the big and the shiny and the well put together. I'm interested in meeting you on your turf. Jesus starts where they are. Jesus starts on the ground and in the woods that they know. He doesn't say, in some sense, he doesn't say, you leave everything you know. He's saying, I will come meet you right where you're at. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, I didn't come for the people who have it all together. I came for the broken and for the forgotten. I came for the overlooked and the addicts. Jesus is saying, don't be fooled here. My kingdom will not come about in the ways that you think it will. I don't build my kingdom from the capital city. I build my kingdom from the forgotten pedestrian regions. Jesus says, I don't rely on slick marketers and and savvy advisors. I rely on a few women whose testimony is legally invalid. And on 11 social rejects from my little forgotten neck of the woods. 
Jesus is saying, I don't prove my power by dominating my enemies. He's saying, I prove my power by letting my enemies dominate me. Because the only way to break death's back is to first let death break mine. We think we know how things should be done. We get our MBAs, we get our advanced degrees, we pull together a strategic plan, we get the right people on the bus, we plan, we execute, we adapt, we evaluate, we go through that cycle again. We think we know how to do things. I would just ask you this, how, how's it going? <laughs> like really think about how are things going? Why does every major company go through a reorganization, a corporate reorganization, and then do the same thing, go through another reorganization less than two years later before the first one's even finished? They thought they knew, but they got to start all over. Why do countries swing back and forth between ruling parties or ruling tribes? If they had it all figured out, they wouldn't have to. The strategies of this world get you the kingdoms of this world. Open the newspaper and tell me, how are the kingdoms of this world doing right now? Hmm? The hard reality is this. Sooner or later, everything will burn. <laughs> I know that's like, thanks for the inspiring Easter message, Chris. Um, Really, as, like literally, ask any scientist and they'll tell you that at, at some point, it's probably billions of years from now, the sun is going to implode on itself into a supernova or however it works. And you're thinking, but Chris, that's a long way away and I won't be here for that. And you're probably right. So let's shorten the timetable a little bit. Every nation comes and goes and comes and goes. And you say, but Chris, that's a long way off, and that's hundreds of years, and it takes hundreds of years, but it's happened. But you say, that's not going to happen to me. And I say, yeah, you're probably right. And your car rusts, and the paint on your house peels, and your body and your mind just aren't quite as nimble as they were 10 or 20 years ago. And even relationships atrophy over time. Like... So, so this summer, our family vacation, we took a short week vacation in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. I didn't know anything about the Poconos before then, but we went. Um, it turns out, maybe some of you probably know this, the Poconos used to be the hot vacation spot, especially for newlyweds. If you're a newlywed, like you honeymooned in the Poconos, that's what I read. It was thriving. Now, 30, 40 years later, you drive through the Poconos, and you will literally see resorts with trees growing through the buildings. They were abandoned 20 years ago, some of them. And in 20 short years, they've gone from thriving to ruins. By the way, I also learned this fun fact. The hot tub, the uh, heart-shaped uh, heart tubs were invented in the Poconos. Fun fact. Um, <laughs> in this world... Like chaos wins, you see? Disorder and disintegration win. In this world, death wins. Except there's an empty tomb. Except 
Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, the holy one of God, became a slave to death itself. He subjected himself to that disintegration and was raised from the dead and defeated it. Because of Jesus, death itself is powerless. It's impotent. Those who are in Christ are not victims to death. Do you realize that? That's what the resurrection means. Death itself has died. This is the death of death. And for those who are in Christ, we know life. Not just a short life, not just kind of get what you can now, not just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. No, actually for us, it's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we live, and then the day after, and then the day after, and the day after for hundreds of thousands of millions of billions of days and years. There is life in the kingdom of Jesus. It's not the life we expect. Because remember, the kingdom of Jesus doesn't grow from, it doesn't grow from the halls of power. The kingdom of Jesus doesn't grow out of boardrooms or out of the C-suite. The kingdom of Jesus, it grows out of back alleyways and out of rehab clinics and out of poverty-stricken rural counties. It's a kingdom that is announced first to the last people you would expect. The last shall be first. And it is a kingdom that demands, frankly, that you die to this flimsy world in order to be raised to abundant, flourishing life. One other pastor puts it this way. He, I'm paraphrasing him. He says, you're basically, you're going to die either way. <laughs> Are you going to die willingly or unwillingly? If you're willing to die now, willingly, figuratively, of course, there is life eternal at your fingertips. It's kind of like an acorn. I read this recently. I'm not a scientist, so maybe some of you understand this better than I do. But I read recently, um, did you know this? An acorn actually has to die in order for an oak seedling to grow out of it. Now, I don't understand the science of it, but it's true of a lot of seeds. Uh, somehow the seed itself dies, and then the plant grows up out of it. If you don't have the death of the seed, you don't get the life of that plant. Are you, are you the acorn? Are you the seed that's just clinging to its former life? And if so, would you consider dying to that life? Because what do you get out of that? You get a hundred-foot oak tree. Far more lasting than a little acorn. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul writes this. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Why does God do things in such an unexpected way? Why does he use the wrong methods and the wrong people in the wrong place? Because it's the only way you can look back and say, that must be God. There is no other explanation. The resurrection, the new creation, the new life, it can only come from God. It only comes through the new life, the resurrection of Jesus' life. The question that confronts e each of us is, will we receive it?
Will you receive the new life that Jesus offers you? Will you die to your old life? Will you die to sin? Will you die to the power structures and, to, and follow Jesus? There is life and there is joy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that as Christians, death is not our greatest fear. We know that as Christians, you call us to die, to die to ourselves, die to our own desires, to die to sin, so that we might be raised to life in Christ. It's a life not of power, but of service. But there is greater joy and greater freedom to be found in serving you than anywhere else. We can't engineer it ourselves. We've tried for thousands of years and we haven't figured it out yet. We can't manufacture or manipulate it ourselves. We rely on you. We look to the empty tomb. And even if we don't understand it all, we, we say with the women, something happened that compels me to come and see and then go and tell. Oh Lord, change us. Give us life. Give us new life. Give us eternal life through the eternal life that is your own, that belongs to your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things and it's to him along with your Father and the Holy Spirit that we ascribe all glory and honor forever and ever. Amen.